Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask, and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness, and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not, and for our blindness we cannot ask. Through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, Sunday, June, July, sorry, the 17th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We um, had a a good week this week, kind of getting back into the groove of things. I tweaked my back, as I said, a couple weeks ago, and what happened several months ago. And thanks to my chiropractor and a whole lot of stretching and uh, some work on foundation, um, core, but largely hamstrings and stuff, my back is a million times better. Um, I'm not, I don't look like the poster for evolution anymore where, you know, you see the guy humped over and then ultimately becomes um, homo erectus. And uh, it would take me about 10 steps after I got out of the truck to start looking like that again but uh, it's all fine now so it's I'm, I'm happy that that i seem to have been on the right mend and all that and moving in the right direction so that's all good we had a good week we did a lot of walking this week we've been trying to get out every single day and, and get in at least three miles got to the gym several times saw friends spent time with friends went to the ball game with friends the other night so it was a good week um I think, you know, we're we're kind of in a place right now. God's got us in a holding pattern. We'd like to sort of make a decision about what to do next and where to go and all that kind of stuff, but but we're just in a holding pattern, and that's okay. Um, that one time that I knew in advance what was next in my life, um, I made a mess of it, largely because I was so uh, hyped up to get where I, where I was supposed to go that it was very difficult for me to concentrate and continue to focus and do the right things where I was. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what it is is next. But I appreciate your prayers for uh, guidance for us and for, for God to give us the direction that he has for us. And, uh, but, um, yeah, we're, we're enjoying where we are and what we're doing, so it's, it's not a complaint. Anyway, so I hope that everything is well in your world. I hope that it's, um, that, that it's not too hot where you are, but it's been pretty much hot everywhere the last few days. But but I hope that you're doing well. If there's anything that I can pray for you about, then feel free to reach out through that web page, uh, through the Facebook page, and, and just let me know, and, and I'll be praying for you. So today, what we're going to look at, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a lot of Jewish background on um, on hospitality, actually, and it's because we're in Genesis 18, 1 to 10, and, and that it's a foundational text for Jewish understanding of the importance of uh, hospitality. In fact, the way they read this chapter, these, these verses, in fact, that we're going to look at today, um, tells them that, that it's, it's more important to give hospitality to strangers than it, than it is to continue to meet with God. That it's the one thing that you can allow a meeting with God to be interrupted by. You'll see in a second, as, as Christians, we don't tend to read this passage the same way at all. Uh, so I, I want to give you some of the background for that. And the reason is because uh, the reason I bring in all this Jewish stuff has everything to do with when Jesus spoke, he was speaking to Jews. And they weren't blank slates. They, they had uh, received a lot of teaching, and there was a lot of instruction. And then some of the laws, quote-unquote, that he breaks are the uh, oral Torah, the oral law, and they consider that to be equal to the written law. In fact, they consider it to be, have give, been given to Moses at Mount Sinai. 
at the same time. And so it's, it's of no less importance, even though it doesn't show up and there's no documentation for it until a couple of hundred years, um, around, well, around the time of Jesus, but, but slightly after. Um, but what they say is that it was oral tradition. It had been passed down until then, and then it was codified as the Jewish diaspora happened. So you've got Jews now living further and further away from Jerusalem. And so there needed to be a consistency in that. And so in order to make it possible for people all over the place to practice Judaism the same way, then they codified the, the Talmud. So that's the way that happens. But but this is sort of, it rises to a little bit different level even than the Talmud. It, it is that important um, within Judaism. So what we get is the Lord appeared to him, and, and him is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So the thing to remember here is, is that in chapter 17, which is the chapter before this, the, the covenant of circumcision had been put in place, and Abraham had just... Um, circumcised himself as well as all the males in his household, and there were quite a few people there. It was a very large household. There were hundreds of people attached to the household, as it were, of Abraham. And so so the, the way they read this is that the Lord the Lord appeared to him. And, and how did he appear? And, and why did he appear at this point in time? Well, he wanted to check in on him, to visit the sick, is the way they read it that he wanted to visit the sick. After the circumcision, he wanted to check in on him and make sure he was doing all right and personally visit him. It was a pretty amazing thing, right? So, so the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. I mean, we just think those are details. Man, they read so much stuff into this, it's unbelievable. Why is he sitting at the door of his tent? Because one of the earmarks of, of the character of Abraham was is that, that he extended hospitality. And so he's sitting in the door of his tent in case anybody passed by to whom he could extend hospitality. And so the, the so that's the reason they say he was sitting by the door of his tent. And then why do we get the, uh, the little detail of it's the heat of the day? Well, because they say it, God made it extremely hot that day. Since he was recovering from his circumcision, God made it extremely hot that day in order that there wouldn't be any passers-by. So, so as not to cause him uh, undue stress and strain to provide hospitality for these people. So in that little verse right there, you see how much is read into that verse. And again, I, I'm telling you that the people that Jesus speaks to, are, this is the way that they understand a lot about life, that hospitality is that important. So he lifted up his eyes, he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So he's meeting with the Lord, and now three men are standing in front of him. I bet you never read it that way, did you? I bet you thought those three men were the same person as the Lord before that. I don't have any idea the right way to read that. I'm telling you, though, they don't read it that way. They read it as the Lord appeared, and then three men appeared. So it's two different things. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So he left God to go run out and give um, hospitality to these three men. And and here's another thing they see in that. They, 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 they see this sort of as enhancing even further the hospitality of this man because he's just been circumcised, and now he runs from the door of the tent to go meet these men because it's that important. And he also then bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So he, he greets them extravagantly. O Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. And then he says, we're going to bring a little water so you can wash your feet, which is common hospitality there. And it's, in fact, it's exactly what Jesus says, Matthew, the not, not, not Matthew, the tax collector slash disciple, but Matthew, the Pharisee. It's exactly what he says he didn't do. He, he didn't do this, and this is the first level of hospitality. When somebody comes in your house, you want them to be able to wash off the, the grime and the dust and the dirt from the road because, you know, you wore sandals and everything was dust and dirt. So that's what you want to do first. It's, it's refreshment. And then he says, you can sit under the tree here, be in the shade a little bit, take your ease. I'll bring you some food, a morsel of bread, he says. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly, he ran again, into the, into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. So, all right, there's the morsel of bread, right? He's gonna, but we're going to make cakes out of this thing. And, and then Abraham ran to the herd. So he, there's three runnings, and I'm not going to go into all the detail about how they interpret that, um, these three running Things. He ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. So I don't know how quickly you can do that, right? Because you've got to kill it, you've got to butcher it, and then you've got to cook it. So I, I, it couldn't have happened too quickly. But, but at any rate, that, that's what he did. So he's, pro, he, he's, he's uh, under-promised and over-delivered, right? So, so he promised a morsel of bread, and what instead they're going to get are they're going to get cakes, they're going to get uh, beef, and they're going to get um, also he takes curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He was an attentive host. Once everybody's in place, though, he's standing there while they eat. He's available to his guests. One of the other things that he does later in the uh, in the passage, and we won't see it because we don't read that part of the passage, is is that that he he accompanies them part of the way. He sees them off on their journey. We do that here at our house because if you come to see us, particularly at night, then there's a possibility that wildlife might be around. Because well, I feed a lot of raccoons for one thing. I don't know how many there are because it's impossible for me to tell the difference between all of them but the other thing we frequently have is bears and so if you come and visit me at night i'm going to go out with you in order to get you safely to your car um i don't know what i would do but um but at any rate uh, that's what we do and, and that's what abraham did he saw these people safely away and so one of the things about hospitality that they they held to be important then was actually seeing people away making sure they safely got away on their journey. And, and the way they looked at it is if you didn't do that part of hospitality, it's as though you murdered the person. So it's an important part of things. All these little details actually matter very deeply in, in the Jewish mind. So he does all this. He's standing there while they eat. And they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And that's all we're going to read in that passage today from, from Genesis. But, but what I want you to see is, is that the Lord's still there too, apparently, because he said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. It's not the three guys who we know to be now. We know later, we, we know that they are angels. But at the time, 
Abraham doesn't seem to be aware that that's who he's entertaining. And so from that, then we, we end up with Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you're also in the body. Now, you may wonder, why did he read that last part? Because I think we would have been perfectly okay with the whole thing about entertaining angels unawares. Well, it's all about hospitality. All the stuff that we're going to look at today is brotherly love. How do we share brotherly love with everybody? Because as we saw last week, our neighbor is anybody who needs us. And so Abraham sees these people coming, or they, they appear before him, actually. They, they just sort of show up there at the tent, and he takes care of their needs. They're strangers to him. But that's exactly the kind of hospitality that's expected of us, and, and we should go out of our way. And Matthew 25 tells us to do these things that he just said. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you're also in the body. And, and so it's a way of loving one another as you love yourself treating one another as you would treat yourself. It's a way of, of fulfilling what Paul says in Romans, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So it, it's all those things together, and, and it's it, it, what it is is asking us to have empathy, and that's exactly what we're supposed to have. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn and, and all those kinds of things, that's what he's saying, that, that we need to, at that level— care about other people. Just because things are great in our world doesn't mean they are with everybody, and we're never supposed to lose sight of that completely. It's what Jesus did. He came in the incarnation to do this very thing, to say, yes, God weeps with those who weeps, rejoices with those who rejoice. I see your pain, I see your difficulty, and I've come here to give you hope that there is a world where all this is gone, and it's all fixed. And he could have just said it, but he chose to come and be one of us, be in the body with us and suffer with us. And now he suffers alongside us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it, it's, it's a hospitality is what Jesus does in bringing us into the household of God, in making us brothers and sisters, not only with one another, but with him as well, and, and bringing us into his inheritance bringing us into the kingdom and the household of God, making us children of the living God. Now that is hospitality. It's never occurred to me to adopt everybody who comes into my household. I've certainly been in houses that were so fine that I would like to have been adopted into that household, but that's what Jesus has done, is is that he has extended so much hospitality to us that he says, I want you to share in my inheritance. I want you to receive what I have, and the only way I can do that is to become like you are and to show you the depth of the love of God for you. It's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. Now, so how do we square that then with our gospel lesson today, which is Luke 10, 38-42? As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Well, we know what village that is now because we know who Martha is, and we're going to meet Mary in a second. So we know that Mary and Martha live in Bethany. And so it's at Martha's house. We don't know if Martha's a widow or, or if none of these people have ever been married, and she's the eldest and therefore sort of the master of the house. So it's, it's considered to be Martha's house. So 
she welcomes Jesus. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, that's very presumptuous because that's not the way it worked in that culture. Men were the ones who were taught, and then women were taught by their husbands what they needed to know. So, so that's the way the teaching happened. So Mary, who doesn't seem to have a husband because we never meet anybody like her husband anywhere in the Gospels, she sits at the Lord's feet as though she were one of the men. And it's an unusual thing, but it, but it tells you a lot about Jesus. It tells you a lot about the sort of the the standards and and the mores and and how he was willing to go beyond those things, how he valued all people, and found it worthwhile that all people, men and women, would learn together. And then we what we hear is Martha was distracted with much serving. I'm going to read a little bit of this, and then we're going to come back. And Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Well, as I said, it seems that Mary is acting in a very presumptuous way by sitting with the men to hear the teaching. Now, we also know there were other women who were with the apostolic group. So we know that, that, that other women would have been present at the same time, not just the twelve. We know that Mary Magdalene, for instance, would have been along at this time. So we've already said, okay, Mary seems to be doing something very presumptuous, at least as far as society was concerned. Not as far as Jesus was concerned, but as far as society was concerned. Well, how presumptuous is this statement that Martha makes? Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. If you care, you're going to tell her to do this. I mean, it's, it's pretty presumptuous. Pretty presumptuous, right? Don't you care? Tell her what to do. Tell her to do what I just told you. You know, <laughs> she's instructing Jesus. And we know what they believe about him. Certainly we know this because of the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. We know how much they believe in Jesus. But here she's actually telling Jesus what he needs to do. You're missing something here. You, you don't care about me. If you cared about me, you would do this thing. You'd do exactly what I just told you you should do. You don't seem to understand, so I'll give you the directions for what to do. Tell her to help me. And Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha. And then he, he says her name twice in order to say, just chill for a second here with me. I'm trying to get your attention. Just calm down. Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And that's the end of our gospel reading today. So now I'm going to go back up. and Because and we're, we're looking and you're thinking, John, you just told me how important hospitality is. So why is Martha being rebuked in this? And why is Mary sort of let off the hook for the serving in this thing? Why, she's not, she doesn't seem to be providing hospitality to Jesus. Martha seems to be doing the thing that you just said is important in Judaism. Well, listen again. Martha was distracted with much serving. She was not concerned so much about the guests as she was the doing. She was distracted with much serving. What did Abraham do? Abraham went and made everything happen, and then what did he do? He stood there with his guests while they ate. He was present and available to them. And so, yes, it's okay to leave the Lord to do that work, but Martha was going above and beyond. She was, she was distracted with much serving. Now, a gift of hospitality is one thing, but, but a second thing 
is hospitality is personal. And, and that's the, the, the reality that, that I think that Martha's missing here. That it's not just that you're trying to lay on a lavish spread. It's not that you're trying to make a big you know, uh, production out of everything. No, you're providing for your guests. And the guests are what is truly important here. And so Abraham knew that. He got everything taken care of, and he got himself out of the way, and he stood there with his guests, attentive, in case they needed anything. And Martha is distracted with much serving, and certainly we can see this again and again. It's easy to do this in the church. It's easy to get so busy with or so consumed by whatever job you have in the church, and that could be a lay person or a clergy person, that you miss the bigger picture. And, and I, I can remember one Sunday morning, I, I, one of the members of my congregation, I could see was angry about something. I couldn't figure out what it was, had no earthly idea what I might have said or done, because that's who I am. I assume it's about me. So, and, and that's the truth. I mean that. So I assumed it was about me. And so after the service, I went up and talked to her. I said, what's going on? She said, it's the candles. Huh, what? Why would the candles make you mad? They're not white. Well, they're natural beeswax candles. They're supposed to be white. I don't remember when Jesus said they had to be white. But but that's the thing. We can get distracted by stuff that's not important and forget what the thing is that's necessary. You know, if you can't look and see, you know, candles there that don't fit your description of what's appropriate, and you let that overwhelm you to the point that you can't listen to the sermon, you can't participate in the worship, you can't really appropriately take communion, then then you're distracted by something that's less important. And, that, and that's what's going on here, I think, with Martha, is that she's distracted with much serving rather than attending to the actual guests that are with her. She set that thing above the guests themselves. And we can do that easily in the church, and we can do it easily in our lives. I always appreciate somebody who is very relaxed about serving. I have a really good friend who will be listening to this who has an incredible gift of hospitality, but she does things the right way in that that she prepares everything in advance. By the time we show up, by the time you know, there's a crowd of people will be at her house, and by the time we get there, she's relaxed and comfortable, and she is asked as the, as the crowd grows on, on a monthly basis, she's asked people to help her. And so then it's all taken care of. And she's not scurrying around and doing all these things at the last minute. And I'm not saying that Martha could have prepared in advance. I don't know whether they knew Jesus was coming or not. But once we're all there, we're the important thing. She's done everything she can do, and now she's just going to deal with us and welcome us. And that's the gift of hospitality is to make things comfortable for the guests and make the guests the focal point of the evening. And so she always prepares a wonderful meal and all that kind of stuff. But by the time we eat, then, then we're all focused on one another and we're enjoying one another's company, including her. So that's exactly what's going on. She's not distracted with much serving. And, and that can be our problem is we can be distracted with much serving. We want to make a production we want something to be everything to be nice and everything to be right for our guests, but that can't come at the expense of our interactions with our guests. And that, that's true in the church. Sometimes we can have things so perfect that we don't actually consider that there are human beings there and we don't interact with the people because we're so concerned about this not being right or that not being right or whatever. I mean, you know, I had another guy come to me one time after the service. He was, he was really angry. I said, what's going on? He said, uh, we had an electric guitar. 
I said, we have an electric guitar every week. I don't know what you're talking about. I honestly had no earthly idea what he was talking about. We had an electric guitar. Yes, we did. We always do. Yes. But typically, it's a hollow-bodied guitar. Oh, my gosh. So is there something scriptural that makes a hollow body somehow better or different and, and, less, and more holy than a solid-body guitar? I mean, it, honestly, it didn't occur to me at all what he was talking about. But, but that's the thing. We can let the unimportant things distract us from the truly important thing. And, and that's what it means, and that's what we need to always consider with hospitality in, in all our lives— we can get distracted with politics. We can get distracted with this, that, and the other sports, whatever. I mean, you know, I can pick on myself with all these things. So we, we can get distracted by our business. We can get distracted by this, by this, by this, by this. And then we don't even see people around us. We're not, we're not meeting needs because we never see them because we're too concerned with our, our, these other things to see the truly important things. And that would be the people. And I want to, real quickly, I want to read an extended quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is incredibly important. It has to do with mere mortals. He said, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it in the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most interesting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's the light of these over, in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind that it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And, and this last part, um, it, our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies love is flippancy, parodies um, merriment. And then this last part right here, this last sentence, for some people it's going to be a little bit odd because Lewis was, a, uh, he was an Anglo-Catholic. He had a very high view of what happens in the, at communion. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And so he takes a very high view of humanity, but, but it's, a, it's a biblical, godly view of humanity. The dignity of humanity is such that Jesus took on humanity to redeem it. We're creating the image of God. Every single person is. And, and so, the, and, and Lewis is right. We need to realize that we're dealing with immortals. We're, we need to understand this. That, that, that if, if I'm beloved of God and I'm, and I'm um, one of God's greatest creations, then so are you. Or you're, you're something that, that I should recoil from in horror. And so we, 
to take one another seriously, we start there. It doesn't mean we can't play. It doesn't mean we can't have fun, joke around, give each other a hard time. But it begins with that knowledge and then moves forward from there, and it never loses sight of that truth. And so this hospitality issue is incredibly important for that very reason. It ties in perfectly with that passage from Hebrews about entertaining strangers as a way of possibly um, providing hospitality for stranger for uh, angels. And so here in, in the in the wrap up in the epistle today, Paul's going to going to move from Jesus to you to himself. That that's the movement in this. First, he's going to talk about Jesus. Then he's going to talk about you, and then he's going to talk about himself. He Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right from the beginning, Paul's saying you need to understand he wasn't just a man. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And what we know from the creed and what we say in the creed is he's not born in the same way that we were. He is begotten, not made. We were made. He was begotten of the Father. In other words, he, he, he comes into being. <clears throat> For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So everything, he says, was created by him by the Word of God, and Jesus is the Word of God. He's, just, he's using John's language here to say these things. And, and here's the other thing. is in he, not only here, but in heaven also, and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, for him means in order to serve him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. So no matter whose name is on the marquee or the sign outside, if Jesus is not the head of the church, then it's not properly a church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the only man to have been resurrected, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he's unique in every single way because the fullness of God dwelt in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So it's not just all people, all things are to be reconciled um, to himself. All things. Everything in creation is reconciled, redeemed, and renewed. And that's why Paul will say all creation groans in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God. Because creation itself was subjected to futility because of the sin of man. And so Jesus comes as the sinless man to reconcile all things to himself. And so we don't have direct access to one another. If we're in Christ, we have access to one another through him. And through fellowship with him, we have fellowship with one another. And then he goes on from there. He says, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the, the penal substitution, the, the taking on of our sins— him taking on the punishment that we should have, and then his righteousness is transferred to us. And therefore we're sanctified, and in that we are, or we're justified, sorry. And then in that, we are reconciled to him through his blood, through our faith in that sacrifice. 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, that's not meant to be play. That's also meant to, we should be pursuing all these things, and he's given us his spirit in order that we can pursue holiness, blamelessness, above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith. And and Paul's not talking here about believism. No, he's talking about the transformation of your life. Paul would not recognize some things that are preached in the church today about believism and, oh, you've been baptized, therefore you're saved. You made a profession of faith once, therefore you're saved. Mm, That's not what it means. Paul doesn't mean that at all when he says if you continue in the faith. No, he means you persevere in that faith, and that faith then transforms your life. And that transformation matters. He says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can't transcend the gospel. You can't transcend that truth. You can't add truth to that. You can't say, well, I believe this and this. No, the writer of Hebrews is very clear about that. There's Jesus, and there's not Jesus. No matter what you call it, those two things are separate. And if you put your trust in anything else besides Jesus, then you're not putting your trust in him. And he's the only one who's been resurrected from the dead, and it proved everything. And so what is there to put your trust in other than the one who's been resurrected from the dead? And so now that's who we are, the beneficiaries of the gospel, the beneficiaries of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And then he goes on to say, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So he's dealt with three classes of people, Jesus, us, and now himself. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I dare you. Name somebody else who would say that. You can't. It's never preached that way. It's never talked about that way. Suffering is something we must avoid. There's no, we don't see any redemptive value in it, and, and Paul does. Paul sees there's a redemptive value, and he said, in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what he's not saying here is Jesus' sacrifice and his afflictions were somehow insufficient. No, what he's saying is, is, is that, that I, I do this in order to bring you to Christ. And, and I will tell you that the affliction of, of what we experienced a year ago when Will was in the hospital and we didn't know if he was going to live or die, and then also, even in his death, the, those afflictions in our lives have been an incredible witness to many people. I, I have a friend that I hadn't seen in a long time that I ran into last week, and it, it was the only thing he could talk about. And this is not a guy who, who is a believer who follows the Lord. But, but that faith that he could only see because of what we've been through it is the affliction that Paul's talking about here that is lacking in Christ's affliction. So what people outside the church don't see is Christ's affliction. What they see it is your faith in your own affliction. And then they can come to see Christ's affliction in the right way, of which, he says, the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He didn't, this is not a gift given to me to preach the word of God. It's a word, it's a, it's a gift given to me for your behalf. I, bl- I am blessed by it, obviously, but, but my joy is when anybody says, hey, I really appreciated what you said, and then I'm always, be aware, if you do that, I'm going to say, what is it particularly? Because I want to know. 
I want to know what it is that resonated with you because uh, things, different things resonate with different people. And so y- whatever resonated with you, you're probably going to preach to me back in a way that I didn't preach it the first time because it, it, it resonated more deeply with you than it did for me. So he says, to, to, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says people didn't have any idea. The prophets, all those people, they didn't know the things that you know today. It's why Jesus says that about John, that, that no man uh, born of a woman has been greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is. And it's because we have the Holy Spirit. We have been born again to a new and living hope, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He said, this was hidden for ages from everyone. He says, him we proclaim, comes back around to Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's hospitality. It's the the loving concern for the good of another. Mary got tied up in food. I mean, Martha got tied up in food. Mary didn't. Abraham didn't get tied up in food. He got, he got tied up in his guests, in his people. And that's what we're supposed to be. And that's what real hospitality is. It's, it's loving people and doing what we can then to, to bring them into our lives in such a way that we're both transformed by the experience and that we both walk away from the receiving or the giving of the hospitality refreshed and renewed.